Bernard Malamud once said, if your train is on the wrong side of the track, every station you come to is the wrong station. At least 14 men were on the wrong train at the wrong time during the 1990s. Many believed the freight train riders of America to be a myth, but many insisted the gang rumored to have over 2,000 members who lived their life on freight trains was real. Wearing black bandanas around their necks with a silver band, the FTRA didn't have membership dues or even a membership list. It was simply a band of vagabonds living freely, hopping from train to train, vowing to watch each other's backs and to share their food, booze, and women. But not all the members played by these rules. The FTRA had a serial killer among them. Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hi, I'm your host, Melissa Lancaster. I definitely want to warn you guys that I'm going to sound a bit off today. I'm hoping that I'm speaking clearly. I have a really, really bad cold, but I still wanted to get this episode out. This episode is of a graphic nature and not appropriate for children. But I've got my coffee with a little bit of skinny syrup in it, and I am ready to jump in. Robert Joseph Silvera Jr. was born in Redwood City, California on May 3rd, 1959. His mother and father were both airline employees, and Joseph was the second born of four children, three boys and one girl. It seemed like a fairly normal family from the outside, but Robert's father was really strict, like one of those strict parents that is just to the point of abuse. He was the type of father that wanted to beat some sense into his children, But regardless, Robert started getting into trouble at age 11. He was skipping school and experimenting with drugs and was even expelled at age 11. Later in life, Robert would tell a story about throwing a kitten into a cactus to a psychologist. He said that the kitten died. It's like serial killer indicator number one right there. Robert was only 12 years old when he broke into and robbed a neighbor's home. I don't know if this had anything to do with Robert's developing drug habit, but since Robert was using drugs heavily at age 14, I think it's a pretty fair assumption. Robert's father's beatings just were not working. I mean, I don't think they usually work, maybe sometimes, but they definitely were not here. I think it was to the point where Robert just had no fear left in him of his father at all. Because when Robert was 21, he stole his father's truck, got arrested, and was charged with auto theft. He was definitely starting a life of crime by this time. But he had a lot of people fooled because he was known for being ruggedly handsome. But he seemed to have a thing for stealing cars and may have made like a whole operation out of it. But drugs cost a lot of money and stealing cars is hard work. Robert broke into a drug dealer's house, held him at gunpoint, and robbed him of all of his drugs and money at one point. At this point, he had been in and out of jail, but it seems like he really only had that 
one auto theft conviction that really like he spent like a year in jail. Other than that, it seems like, you know, he was just arrested, maybe let go. Um, but his parents were definitely concerned and they were trying to get him a job at the airline that they worked at. But unfortunately, Robert went to work high and got fired. At this point, Robert just wanted to get away from his parents and out on his own. He hitchhiked from California and was on his way to Arizona when the driver of the vehicle he was hitchhiking in pulled over and propositioned Robert for sex. According to the podcast Serial Killers, he had noticed a gun in the back of the man's vehicle and asked the man to teach him to shoot. The man agreed and showed Robert how to shoot and then handed Robert the gun so that, you know, we could have his turn. But Robert just turned directly around with that gun and shot the guy and killed him. It was his first murder. Robert robbed the man, stuck the body in the trunk of the car, drove a bit, and then set the car on fire to cover up his crime. It seems like there was a few times that Robert tried to live a normal life. He met a girl and married her, but the only problem was that she was so much younger than him. And we all know, like when we get older, these big age gaps don't matter. But when you're in your mid-20s and you marry a 14-year-old, that's definitely not okay. The couple had a baby and attempted to set down roots in Kentucky, but family life just wasn't for Robert. He couldn't keep a job, and Robert was arrested again for stealing from a prior employer. And he was convicted and did spend a year in jail. So a year later, he's let out of jail. It's 1987. Robert returned home to his wife and child, but he kept disappearing. Just she had no idea where he was going. She eventually realized that he was an addict and going on benders. She confronted him. Robert just packed his stuff and left and never came back. Robert decided to go out west. And this is when he realized that he liked hopping trains. A life full of freedom and full of the drugs he wanted. When Robert was 30, he killed his second victim. Not much is known of their relationship, but Anthony Garcia was 62 years old when Robert bludgeoned him to death. In 1990, Robert met his second wife at a family event that he attended with a friend. So this is not Robert's family. This is a, a friend's family. This poor woman had no idea her husband was a drug addict. He did disappear a lot. And when they were only married four months, she started hearing rumors that he was an addict. She realized that he was stealing from her purse and kicked him to the curb. Robert started hopping trains again and joined the FTRA. Robert was a user of heroin, crack, and meth by this time. According to the podcast Serial Killers, he started using heroin when he was just 12. Robert couldn't keep a job and stealing seemed to be a part of his life. Living on train cars probably really felt ideal for him. And the FTRA, Freight Train Riders of America, did not start as a gang of miscreants. The name actually started with some disgruntled Vietnam veterans in a bar. 
These men liked to ride the rails. They did it for fun. They just enjoyed it. And the name initially stood for Fuck the Reagan Association. The group was often referred to as Bikers Without Bikes. The men who joined took on street names like Moose, F Troop, Pennsylvania Pollock, and in Robert's case, Sideline Bob. The original FTR members rode the High Line, which ran from Chicago to Seattle. The FTRA turf came to be considered trains from Seattle to Mexico. This group may have started simply as a group of men that wanted a peaceful life riding the rails, but like all things do, the group had evolved. And in the 1980s, it was a big thing for the FTRA to steal merchandise from trains, I assume to sell them for drug money. The group was linked to at least one train derailment as well. The train hoppers would communicate with each other through graffiti-like messages. You know how when you pass like an underpass and there's graffiti and it says so-and-so was here or whatnot, like that, which honestly amazes me. I never looked at that ever in my life and thought like people were communicating with each other. I just thought it was like graffiti. These men had also set up camps at switchyards or wherever that the hobos could sleep at together and they called them jungles. The members would ride trains down south in the winter and more northern trains in the summer. I honestly feel like this is the most glorious type of homelessness. It's like a brotherhood of sorts and anyone could join. Just wear a black bandana with a silver ring and watch your back. There's also offshoot branches that rode different railways and they use like different color bandanas. These men basically lived off food stamp fraud and welfare fraud. Now, joining might be a bit hard because if you don't watch your back, they'll just push you out of the train car to your death. I read that being an adventurous yuppie on a train car will probably result in your death. Also, if no one pushes you out, falling is a huge probability, which is why most dead men that are found along the tracks are considered accidental deaths. The FTRA members would carry objects to bludgeon people to death with. I saw a lot of reference to axe handles, which is, I guess they call them goon sticks. I think pretty much like anything you can bludgeon somebody with is a goon stick. I could be a little bit off on that, but the axe handles are definitely called goon sticks. I did wonder why they didn't keep the axe head. I mean, it just seems like more of a weapon that way, but I don't know, maybe it was heavy. I don't know. So they got rid of it. I just wonder why there's all these axe handles circulating around. But they also carried clubs, canes, knives, pistols. They were often panhandlers, burglars. They used other people's identity to get food stamps and welfare. And whatever they did wrong is just whatever, because they just hop on the next train out of there into a different police jurisdiction, into a different state. Just like that, imagine having to be the one to piece these murders together across multiple states. I'm always surprised at how little information you can find on victims of crimes. And 
as time goes on, I feel like that's changed a little bit. Like now we have more of an internet presence, like dedication pages, memorial pages, Facebooks. But older cases like this, we see the name of a person that was murdered. We know sometimes how they were murdered. Sometimes there's really no details on that. But there's definitely nothing about their life. It's really hard to humanize them. I find that to be really sad. What I can tell you is that Robert Silvera, in true beast-like fashion, killed Darren Royal Miller in 1992, Willie Clark in 1994, Michael Garfinkel in 1994, and with no more regard for life or punishment left in his soul, he killed Roger Bowman, James McLean, Charles Randall Boyd, an unidentified drug dealer, Paul Way Matthews, William Avis Petit Jr., Michael Kleitz, and Michael Brandolino, all in 1995. He would sneak up on the men, usually while they were sleeping, and bludgeon them or beat them to death in one way or another. Usually, he beat his unsuspecting sleeping victims with his goon stick, but at times he had to improvise, using his boot to crush someone's head, or possibly a pipe or cinder block, two by four, or even a fence post. He also stabbed one of his victims' dogs to death. He covered the faces of his victims, sometimes with a sleeping bag, Other times, he had their shirt pulled up over their head, and many of them were just pushed out of the train that way, with their shirt pulled up over their head. And that was what led investigators to realize that this wasn't just people falling off of the train. Men weren't pulling the front of their own shirt up over their heads and just falling off the trains. I also feel that on our show so far, we really haven't talked enough about the victims. And so I've made that like a little goal of mine. Robert's victims were all between the ages of 19 and 62. These men were drug addicts, alcoholics, drifters, but they all mattered to someone. Some had their whole second lives ahead to live. Others had children and possibly even grandchildren. And most of them were veterans that served proudly. Every one of these men were missed by someone, and I hope that they rest in peace. Robert Silvera had a neck tattoo that said freedom, but he ripped the freedom away from these men. Police had been following the trail of bodies along the tracks, and they were aware of the serial killer in the freight train community. They called him the boxcar killer. Police put together a special surveillance team to monitor the rails, and eventually, Robert was connected to the crimes. He was featured on America's Most Wanted, and a railroad officer recognized Robert Silvera on March 2, 1996. Robert was carrying a gun and thought about shooting the officer, but thankfully he didn't. He was taken in without incident. I don't think that there's a clear explanation as to why Robert was killing his fellow travelers. The podcast Serial Killers stated that he killed men that propositioned him for sex. And leading a life homeless on the rails with drugs and whatnot, I'm sure that that happened a lot. 
Other sources seem to have other ideas. Some say that he felt bad for the hobos. A lot of them were ill or disabled, so like mercy killings. Others say that Robert Silvera just enjoyed the thrill. There is a traumatic memory that Robert had that he would think about when he was mustering up the courage to commit a murder. I couldn't find much on how Robert got into a psychiatrist's office. I don't know if he went there on his own or maybe at the urging of his parents. But Robert was one day in a psychiatrist's office when he was told that everyone has problems and to take a number. This really seemed to have a long lasting effect on him. It must have really really burnt deep into his psyche if this was a memory that he could pull forth and still feel that pain. I also read that at one point Robert was asked to leave a psychiatrist's office. Now, I don't know if these are possibly the same instance or if there's a possibility that Robert was seeked help twice. Now, I understand that everyone has to wait their turn. I do. I also understand that people in the mental health field must deal with a lot of crap. But I think that we've all felt that feeling before, that feeling of being cast aside like that. And it can feel pretty awful. It is a no excuse for killing anyone. But it must be hard to have feelings, you know, that need to murder people and think that there's a possible potential that you could get help. Be brave enough to walk into that psychiatrist's office thinking, I'm going to go in here. I'll get some medication maybe. Maybe I'll feel better. And then here, everyone has problems. Take a number. Sideline Bob, or Robert, started talking as soon as they brought him in. He literally told them, there's a graveyard out there. He confessed to either 28 or 47 murders. This really varied per source. Um, But he's suspected of killing 14. He was only convicted of two. And he took a plea bargain in Oregon, Kansas, and Florida. And he was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in Oregon without parole. But from what I can tell, he's serving his sentence at the Wyoming Medium Correctional Institute. I do wonder if he's still there or if that could have been old information. Because when I did a Wyoming Department of Corrections search, he did not come up. But whether he is there or was there, it's said that he works as a cook and is an advisor to new inmates and seems to be doing really well. I honestly feel that two consecutive life sentences is not enough. I feel like he shouldn't get out. And maybe he won't because he will be in his 70s when his second life sentence is up from what I can find. But I can't find an actual release date for him. Um, But, you know, if the average life sentence is 15 years and he was sentenced somewhere around 1998. That seems like it could be like 2028 when he's released. He was 22 when he first committed murder and 39 when he pled guilty. So this would leave him about 70-ish when he got out, which could be looked at in two ways. You know, he 
it's too old to commit crimes now, you know, let him lead the rest of his life in peace and whatnot. Or, you know, he doesn't have anything to lose. He could definitely kill again. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I will see you next week. Stay safe. And remember, evil people are everywhere. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we also have a YouTube channel. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us an Apple Podcast five-star rating, sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support.